For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. A new report finds a state lawmaker received more than $100,000 over the appraised value of her home when she sold it to the Oklahoma Turnpike Authority for its planned extension in Norman. Republican Representative Sherry Conley, who sits on the House Transportation Committee, also received $26,000 in moving expenses, despite challenges to the extension by her constituents. Neva, is this controversy or business as usual? (laughs) Well, it's controversy for a lot of her constituents, I think, uh, some of whom have uh, adamantly opposed the turnpike uh, from the get-go and have made comments since uh, the revelations uh, have have come out on what... uh, Uh, Representative Conley has done, no one is suggesting that there's any impropriety in the action itself. I think it's just it doesn't quite pass the political smell test for a lot of folks. And when you think about it, I mean, uh, she sits on the House Transportation Committee less than 48 hours after the agency unveils this proposal for these new toll roads, which would directly affect her home. Um, She's uh, on the phone making an appointment. A week later, the folks are out there from uh, the Turnpike Authority appraisers visiting. And then, as you say, um, Michael, the the aftermath is that clearly she came out very well on this, uh, negotiated... uh, Uh, Her negotiations started much higher than what they ultimately wound up with, but I think this give and take uh, has raised a lot of eyebrows, clearly in her district and among other lawmakers, as to uh, the scrutiny that they're all under. And obviously on the Transportation Committee, there are many bills that are going to come up that directly affect the Turnpike Authority the Transportation Commission, and it will raise, uh, I think it will kind of raise the focus on these lawmakers as they're making these decisions on um, making sure that there is nothing improper or out of order. And in this instance, I think it further adds scrutiny to the entire proposition of these toll roads, uh, which are still in question. I think that's the issue that uh, even one of the leaders of the uh, anti-turnpike group said was uh, we're talking about something that then in their estimation is still not legal. Mm-hmm. And so uh, much, much, to, uh, much to follow on this, and I think it's something that we'll continue to hear more about during the session. Right. Well, and I think that you know, Representative Conley did what I hope uh, what most Oklahomans would do if the government's at your door and they're saying, we, we want to take your property to build you know, whatever it is. Maybe it's a turnpike. Maybe it's a highway. Maybe it's a public school. Who knows what it is? They want to take your property. They have to pay you for that. And then you enter into a negotiation with the government and you try to get the best price that you can. And the government should pay you. I mean, they, the government shouldn't be trying to uh, rip up Oklahomans off and pay bottom dollar prices for property whenever you know, this may be a family home. They may have been there for a very long, any number of reasons, right? Uh, that you're having to leave your home uh, is an incredibly traumatic thing and the state should compensate you fairly for it. The difference is here is that Representative Conley could have been transparent about this from the beginning. I, you know, I haven't seen any evidence that what she did is wrong. In fact, I hope that this process would go as well for any other Oklahoman uh, and that they would be able to negotiate fair prices that compensate them for the loss of their home. But this is something where uh, you know, she should have thought back whenever this was all taking place, do I want people to find out about this from me or do I want people to find out about this from the newspaper? Uh, because ultimately it was going to come out where, you know, right or wrong, it was going to come out. Um, you know, and they're 
does raise some issues of a conflict of interest. I don't think that she's acted on that conflict of interest, but if you have an interest in that turnpike continuing or the legal uh, authority of the turnpike authority to even be able to pay money for these properties, that, that could affect how you vote on legislation or legislation that you support or whether you support the turnpike or don't support the turnpike. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's where she should have been transparent about things. And I, I would imagine that she's probably learned that lesson uh, now uh, and I think a lot of other lawmakers as we're, I think we're going to talk about conflicts of interest later in the program on, on other matters as well. It does, I think, you know, raise the question, you know, Neva said there's, there are larger issues about how the state goes about acquiring this land to begin with. That's an enormous issue in and of itself. Another issue is how lawmakers uh, are advised on ethical issues like this. And, and there's really not a good way for representative Conley. I mean, this one seems like, you know, the smell test is is a good one. The, do you do want to see it in the, the newspaper? That's a good one. But it would be great if there were ethics officers that worked for the state that could advise state officials and state legislators in particular uh, you know, on these matters and be able to reach out and get an opinion. You know, it's interesting, too. These records by the Turnpike Authority uh, show that there is this history of uh, of paying more than appraised values. I mean, when you look at even the, Kick- the Kickapoo Turnpike, which was the most recent, the one in eastern Oklahoma County, uh, they paid more than $20 million above appraised value on the properties that they that they took. And I think it's important to note that they have said that less than 5% in these projects have been taken by eminent domain. So clearly, uh, the folks that are impacted are able to negotiate and work with the uh, uh, work with the authority to uh, strike a deal. And in I think in the cases, what we're seeing is that uh, these folks have become wise to the process and that they know they can get more, not less. And uh, even in the instance of Uh, the current uh, turnpike issue, uh, these toll roads, I think there were only nine last year uh, that were, um, that that they actually did something about. Three of those were, I think, homes that were just under construction. So Mm -hmm. in addition to Representative Conley. So um, again, I think there's a lot of focus on this and part of it is still because of all the legal issues that are unresolved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Attorney General Gettner Drummond is taking over another case from Oklahoma County District Attorney Vicki Behenna. Drummond is assuming control over a conspiracy case against Representative Terry O'Donnell. The Catoosa Republican faces eight criminal counts for authoring legislation resulting in his wife getting named a state motor vehicle tag agent. O'Donnell and his wife were indicted by an Oklahoma County grand jury in December. Ryan, what do you think of this move by the AG? Well, I I think that this move by the AG is a strong argument for a sister show this week in Oklahoma's attorney general. Uh, (laughs) Because, you know, we find ourselves talking a lot about this new attorney general. You know, I think that it... uh, uh, we should it shouldn't go without saying this guy is you know really moving at a hundred miles an hour in the AG's office and uh, you know I, I think for a lot of Oklahomans um, it is you know you see you see this kind of activity uh, it is a reminder of how powerful that position is mm-hmm. and how powerful it can be uh, and you know not just because of, of this attorney general but any attorney general there are a lot of powers that go along with this constitutional office um, and taking this back I think is a, a signal that he's ready to just delve right into one of the biggest political legal thickets uh, of of this of uh, his short tenure, because it's not just talking about uh, Representative O'Donnell, who was uh, until all of this came to light and he resigned, the number two leader in the Oklahoma House of Representatives. But if you start to look at these the grand jury reports, I mean, you you see testimony from folks like the Speaker himself, uh, the pro temp, the Senate pro temp, uh, the 
uh, Appropriations and Budget Chair in the Senate, uh, the House Civil Judiciary Chairman, uh, and the Office of the Governor, uh, you know, all kind of weighing in uh, on, on what happened with this one particular piece of legislation. Again, we were talking about conflicts of interest earlier, and uh, you know, so much of this, I think, could have been uh, avoided uh, if, if there was just disclosure and transparency uh, and that, you know, that, and then if you, if you have a direct conflict, you shouldn't be involved in that process, uh, you know, plain and simple. Um, and so I, this will be really interesting because we're, we're not talking about whether somebody violated an ethics rule, uh, you know, that they could be fined for. We're talking about criminal charges that could put somebody in prison, uh, a person and his wife and a representative and his wife possibly in prison. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then you've got all of these other political players and, you know, this is uh, the other th- the other thing, and uh, Trey Savage mentioned this in his non-doc report. Uh, the other dynamic is a lot of folks think that Gettner Drummond is positioning himself to run for governor in four years when Governor Stitt is term limited, and the most likely opponent that other folks are talking about is the Speaker of the House, Charles McCall, who's very close to Representative Terry O'Donnell uh, and has also testified in front of this grand jury uh, that led to the the indictment itself. So. Uh, there's going to be a lot to unpack here as we move forward. And, you know, I think that, you know, Gettner Drummond, again, jumped into the biggest political thicket of his uh, short career so far. Neva? I do think it's a, a big uh, political thicket. And I think it's a question that a lot of people uh, have asked, and that is why. I mean, that he took uh, he took control of something that uh, the Oklahoma, De- this Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office had been investigating, uh, had brought to the grand jury. There were the, indi- were the indictments of the O'Don- O'Donnells, as we've talked about. And I think in this instance, uh, the big question is, you're right, Ryan, there's so much political intrigue involved in this because not only all of the uh, folks that you just mentioned, but the fact that you also have um, uh, you also have uh, Gettner Drummond's chief of staff, uh, Trevor Worthen, who is someone that has had close al- close uh, uh, alliances with the uh, speaker and been involved and and uh, uh, politically uh, in in the past. So there are, there are a lot of dynamics here, and I think there's been a lot of uh, just kind of uh, coffee talk, shall we say, about. Uh, what's the win in this for either side? And so I think uh, in the instance of uh, the new incoming newly elected and now uh, Oklahoma County uh, District Attorney Vicki Bahanna, uh, there was no real there was no real statement made as to uh, whether whether they initiated the conversation or kind of how all of this came about, as was true out of uh, the Attorney General's office mm-hmm. when asked. I mean, that there wasn't an immediate response as to the why. So they've got it now. Uh, it's certainly politically explosive. It is an indictment. Uh, they are indictments that uh, have to be addressed. And so uh, I, think, I think this is one people will watch with great interest just because, as you say, not only all of the things mentioned, but the political backdrop of already this high speculation that you have Charles McCall and Gettner Drummond with their eyes focused on uh, the uh, governor's race in, in four years, and would they l- likely become uh, Republican primary opponents uh, with others, obviously, in the race, I think anyone would suspect. So um, this is going to be fascinating to watch, and we'll see how quickly it's dispatched. I mean, the grand jury report, you mentioned Trey Savage. I mean, their non-doc uh, uh, work on this article, I mean, they 
release the full uh, grand jury uh, final report, uh, and certainly interesting reading. And mm-hmm. I think folks can begin to uh, uh, take a look at some of this information and make their own determination what they think based on the facts that have been outlined. But anyone, you know, I think David Prater made it clear uh, last month uh, as he was leaving office that uh, his involvement with this particular case had nothing to do with politics. And he made it, you know, he made a very strong statement saying that he stood by the grand jury's work, uh, he stood by the indictment. Um, and the evidence, and he felt like at the appropriate time that the information that would come out that led to the indictment uh, would tell the rest of the story. So we'll watch with interest. And, and I want to, and I think I probably speak for Neva here as well. You, you can always correct me if I'm wrong. You do. Uh, <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I think, you know, neither of us are, are suggesting that uh, the attorney general is politically motivated in, the, in this uh, instance. It's just that his office is going to be facing these questions given the context. Over, Absolutely. Over, yeah, so Absolutely. This, uh, you know, that's, I think when we're raising that, we're not, we're not suggesting that that's behind this, but that the context is going to raise these questions mm-hmm. over the next several months in the, in the course of this investigation and prosecution. I would agree. Attorney General Gettner Drummond is asking the Court of Criminal Appeals to drop a case seeking to restore more criminal jurisdiction to the state on tribal reservations. Drummond says the case against a Cherokee citizen accused of a crime on eastern Shawnee tribal land isn't a good one to decide whether the state can prosecute a Native American for a crime committed on another tribe's reservation. Neva, does this move signal a pause in efforts to chip away at the McGirt ruling? Well, I think it does signal a pause, and I think it is this continued um, big storyline of McGirt and what ultimately could wind up um, uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court to finally uh, deal with the issues that uh, are still being outlined here. And I think the fact that Drummond has made the case that uh, he believes that the case in question uh, is not the best one to come up with the with the real resolution uh, kind of falls in line with what John O'Connor told the uh, uh, Court of Criminal Appeals back in December when he said that the, that they felt like they had s- at least a couple of other cases that were probably better positioned to give a clearer path to get some resolution. So I think at the end of all of this, uh, I think from the federal standpoint, from the state standpoint, from the tribe standpoint, everyone wants resolution on on McGirt, and it's going to take uh, it's going to take time, and we'll have to see how. Uh, the new attorney general navigates through this and whether he can uh, kind of push the uh, push the envelope, so to speak, to move this along uh, with his uh, with his motion that he filed last week with the uh, Oklahoma Court of uh, Criminal Appeals. Right. You know, Oklahomans, uh, well, voters all around, you know, you hear it all the time. It doesn't matter one politician versus another politician. They're all the same. Well, they're not. And the elections have consequences. This is something that is very different from the last administration that was John O'Connor as the attorney general and the governor appointed him, of course, and I, in large part because of uh, former attorney general O'Connor's position on McGirt. Um, and so we had an election, new attorney general, who during that entire election made it very clear that he wanted to uphold the McGirt ruling, that he wanted to uh, reach a more productive relationship with the tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma. And I think part of that meant allowing McGirt and then the subsequent cases to become settled law and everybody just look back at the landscape because we're not entirely sure what that landscape ultimately looks like. Uh, You know, there are a lot of issues in terms of bandwidth and capacity of the federal governments and the tribal governments and how they're adjusting to this new criminal jurisdiction and uh, largely in eastern Oklahoma and the tribal governments there as well and the federal government. Um, I think that this pause 
uh, is is very welcome uh, to just say, you know, we we need to look uh, at where we currently stand. Now, of course, this isn't automatic. Uh, Attorney General Drummond's uh, request is a request to the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals. They have jurisdiction in this matter, mm-hmm. uh, and you know the. It would be difficult to see them saying, oh, well, we're not going to grant your request if the state's lead prosecutor isn't willing to move forward with the case because who prosecutes the case at that point? Right. Uh, but ultimately, this, this is a decision that they have to make. I suspect they will grant his request, but let's not consider it a given mm-hmm. uh, because the Court of Criminal Appeals in Oklahoma has not been shy at weighing in on how they interpret McGirt uh, and um, you know some of the unanswered questions that were left from that Supreme Court decision. But you know, hopefully they will, and everybody will just get a chance to take a breath uh, and see where we're currently at with the uh, legal landscape post McGirt uh, and the uh, subsequent decisions. And you're and you're right, Ryan. In terms of the judges on the Court of Criminal Appeals, they have had to deal with the hundreds of cases since uh, 2020, and uh, there's been clear division on the court uh, mm-hmm. on the on these cases on on the interpretation, as you say, of McGirt. So uh, there's no there's no clear signal yet what they will do. I think they will move fairly quickly. One would one would expect. Uh, and I and we've not heard, and there has been anticipation that the Biden administration was going to weigh in and have something to say on this, uh, perhaps this week or next week as well. So we'll have to see where they come down on the issue. Earlier this week, the statewide virtual charter school board heard arguments over a charter school backed by the Catholic Church. If approved in March, it would be the first religious charter school in the country. The Archdiocese of OKC in Tulsa say the school to be funded by taxpayer dollars could eventually enroll up to 5,000 students. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this proposal? Well, yeah, just looking at the, let's just, you know, back out and look at what the ask is. And I think that the ask takes a lot of audacity uh, for one of the most powerful and wealthy institutions in the history of mankind uh, to stand in front of the state charter board school and say, we don't have the money to run an internet school for kids in rural Oklahoma that are Catholic and their families. That, that to me just does not really square with the, uh, the requirement of humility among the Catholic faith that Pope uh, Francis has recently uh, re-articulated in a Christmas address, address himself. And so, you know, to me, that's the, that's, you know, you, that, there's a lot of audacity to be able to stand there and say, we don't have the money. You know, a marketplace report um, uh, from the NPR show Marketplace just a few days ago said that the Catholic Church has at least $73 billion in assets. Um, and so I, that's strange. And, you know, yeah, here we are high-ranking official from the church asking for tax dollars to build an internet school uh, for their faith. Um, I think it would be a mistake to say that this is really about money, though. Uh, The money is is a pretext. The request for the money is a pretext. Um, I think that what the uh, archdiocese is looking for here uh, is an opportunity to tee up litigation that would ultimately go in front of the current composition of the United States Supreme Court uh, to try to change uh, the the current doctrine of separation of church and state as it comes to funding sectarian or religious schools. Um, you know, whether the Supreme Court would do that or not, I, I who knows? I mean, it's, it's a new composition of the court. Uh, I think that it would be a mistake to erode that, uh, that wall of separation of church and state um, for, for a number of reasons, you know, not, not the least of which is if the Catholic Church uh, gets their charter school you know, they at that point can't discriminate against any other faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we could have state subsidized religious schools that don't necessarily look like religions that, uh, you know, most Oklahomans belong to. Uh, and so that's, that's a question. And the idea that Catholic school uh, or that the Catholic uh, Oklahomans or that their students are being discriminated against because they can't do this. They're not. If a Catholic, if a Catholic student 
were prohibited from going to an online charter school that is you know, non-religious, boy, I'd be first in line to go and fight for the right to be there. Uh, you, know, you know, I've got a resume that backs that up. I, I would be there. Um, they have a right to go to those schools. What they're asking for here is a is state subsidy to run a school that they would otherwise run themselves. Neva. And that's exactly right. And I think, I think you're right on the premise that this sets up for something that the long view is, let's take this to the United States Supreme Court ultimately. But in the meantime, um, Oklahoma's current law is very clear. It states mm-hmm. that charter school sponsors may not authorize a, a charter school or program that is affiliated with a religious institution or a or non-public sectarian school. So uh, Oklahoma's law is clear. Charter schools are public schools. They are public-funded schools uh, and, and institutions. And to deviate from that and now move to say that private schools can get these dollars, I mean, and that's where ultimately we're talking about the fight going. Uh, it is about this, this bigger conversation and this bigger fight about school choice, not just simply in Oklahoma, but going on all across the nation. And I think uh, whether Oklahoma is now kind of uh, in the in the throes of being the state that takes it and really um, moves it all of the way to the to kind of to the top, so to speak, uh, with the ultimate idea that the U.S. Supreme Court will have to decide this, that's a, that's a big question. But when I think when folks really step back and look at this and look at the ask, like you say, Ryan, I mean, this is this is very specific, and their ask to the virtual charter school board uh, was something that when they when the question started getting pummeled, uh, there weren't a lot of uh, answers quickly forthcoming. And I, so I think there's going to be a lot of rigorous, very strong debate. I think lawmakers are going to have to weigh in on this because we're talking about folks uh, uh, all across Oklahoma uh, being directly impacted in, in the schools. And, you know, when you talk about the Catholic, um, you know, in this instance, the Catholic schools, I mean, one of the things that they pointed out themselves uh, was that uh, they were talking about initially en- enrolling 500 students perhaps at the outset, and then maybe in five years having uh, tripled that to 1,500 or so, all t- funded by Oklahoma taxpayers. And I, I think it does beg the question, as you say, is is the need there and why this direction as opposed to just going about it on their own as so many other um, online and, and private schools have done through the years. So to, to ask to take on the added bureaucracy and the added scrutiny and the added um, things that, that go along with uh, those public dollars being expended in a, in a school, uh, those are those are questions and uh, that have to be answered and to the satisfaction of all of the stakeholders. So um, ultimately, I think this is something that folks are going to pay a lot of attention to. A lot of people already seem to have their minds made up, but th- as more information comes out and more of these more of these uh, ideas come forward in terms of applications for. Um, uh, for virtual schools and other things to uh, uh, to be uh, to be addressed, I think it will I think it will ebb and flow in terms of where folks are, and I'd be fascinated to see what uh, some of the uh, uh, current uh, polling, if there was uh-huh. any, on this subject mm-hmm. uh, uh, suggests, because I don't think it's a blanket uh, I don't think it's a blanket one way or the other. I think there's so many nuances to this, so many questions still 
that um, we're, this is kind of the first volley in a long, long ball game. Well, maybe we should start a charter school. Yeah, everybody else is getting in on this deal. <laughs> well, I think it's easier for people to go, okay, well, a Christian charter school, they'd probably be behind that if yeah. you ask most Oklahomans. Yeah. But then you say, well, okay, what about a Muslim charter school? What a pagan what, charter what, school? What, what a about, Buddhist charter school? Or something you know? for, for non-believers, uh, right. you know, something that insists on the, the absence of a God, the absence of a higher power. Um, you know, those, would we want the state to fund that? I mean, uh, I, I, I look at all of this as, is, you know, if a, uh, any school that's getting tax dollars, that's funded by tax dollars in, in the state of Oklahoma ought to be a school that any Oklahoma child can go to and not feel like they're a second class citizen because of how they believe or don't believe. And, you know, when you open it up to a school of, of faith, I'm all for it. I mean, you know, have your school. That's great. Anybody wants to shut it down, I'll be there to protect you. But you don't need my tax dollars to do it because that is your religious, that's your religious initiative and imperative. That's not the imperative of running a school that's for all of Oklahoma's kids. A House committee advanced legislation to take control of the State Board of Education away from the governor. House Bill 2562 would add four members to the board to be appointed by the House Speaker and Senate President Pro Tem and require two of those picks to be former superintendents of small school districts. Neva, even if this legislation gets to the governor, how likely is he to sign it? Well, I think I think uh, the governor certainly, I would hope, would take a serious look at everything that crosses his desk for signature uh, coming from the legislature. But in this instance, I mean, both of these passed easily out of committee mm-hmm. in the House this week. They now have the opportunity to, to go to the full House to, uh, to see if it moves forward and moves over to the Senate side. But when you, when you talk about what both bills say— um, there's very little argument, at least on the front end that I've heard. I mean, it makes perfect sense that uh, that the lawmakers basically are saying we need to have input in this process. We're part of, you know, the we're, we're the folks that appropriate the dollars, or at least are in that discussion. And not to have us involved uh, makes no sense. And I think the other thing is uh, Representative Baker's measure that prohibits a person from serving on. Um, a school board in a district at the same mm-hmm. time of serving on the state school board. To me, um, I think a lot of people that I've talked to say that's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. So um, whether this gets uh, politically hung up uh, with uh, uh, kind of the give and take on on education bills as it continues to move through the process, we'll see. But uh, at least on its face value, you one would have a hard time, I think, arguing that there's not merit in both of these bills. Right. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, again, if this lands on the governor's desk, the, the question has been is does the legislature, we knew that this was coming. We knew that there were going to be efforts this legislative session to rein in the executive power, uh, not just of this governor, but but future governors. Um, and the question is, is, does the legislature have to pass these with a veto-proof majority? Uh, such that if the governor vetoes it, that they can override the veto. I think on a measure like this, they might not even have to do that because it is it is such a uh, modest, common sense reform. And, you know, this isn't a full attack on the governor's authority to uh, control. Right, he's still these got bo- the five members. He still has the five can. members. I think that you know, negotiations will probably uh, focus on, you know, does the governor get to fire the legislature's appointments at will, as he does with his executive uh, appointed members and currently basically the entire board. Right now, that's that's a that's another issue, not just who appoints, but who gets to fire and how they get to fire them. Do they get to fire them for uh, cause, or do they get to fire them for whatever reason they want? Um, that those are conversations that I think that we'll see uh, discussed over the course of the legislative session. Uh, but to me, this is a, a very reasonable 
uh, approach. Um, it is it is not the we're taking all of this back from the governor. Uh, you know, we're, the governor is still very much involved and still is controlling a majority of the board. Um, so I, I, I think it'd be difficult for the governor to if this bill were on his desk today, I think it would be difficult for him to veto it. Uh, and say that it was uh, not common sense. And I think one of the other things about the membership, if it were to change, that's important to note is that a former uh, school superintendent from a d- small district, a district yeah, I think 10, enrollment 000. under mm-hmm. ten thousand, would have to be one of these folks as well. So I think having I think having these folks that have the the uh, I think was described the real life experience or real world public school experience uh, involved in in the decision making on a board is is very important. And I mm-hmm. think for these lawmakers to say we need folks at the table uh, who can represent and be involved that uh, can broaden the conversation and not just have a board that's uh, kind of wholly designed by one person, the governor at this point, uh, would be a smart move in terms of uh, the long-range conversation on all these very complex issues that are coming forward. And the politics of the State Department of Education, the board, if we look outside of all of that, right, if we just looked at a vacuum, you know, not the, the fights over Ryan Walters uh, and the and the fights over the board or the governor. Take all of these individuals out, and if we just looked at this legislation as a way to set up the the board of education, I think we could probably look at that and say, well, this is a good way to do that, um, and and not even think of it as responsive to the uh, political events that have happened over the last several years. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.